Well, we're in Genesis 1 and the first part of Genesis 2, and we're looking at the Pentateuch and, and gospel foundations, and I encourage you to, if you're able, to stand with me as we uh, read Genesis 1 again, and we're going to, Lord willing, complete looking at Genesis 1 as we do this overview this morning. We began looking at it last week, and remember as we read, we're reading this, the story of these, these six days of creation, the seventh day of God resting, and we see that these, are, these days are separated into kind of two sets of three. You see the first three days corresponding with the last three days and just some, some neat things about God, who is the sovereign creator God, God from the beginning. Here in Genesis chapter 1, I'll be beginning in verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, Let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, Let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear, and it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas, and God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and Trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the night, uh, the day from the night. And let, there, let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning. The fifth day, and God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and it was so. 
And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit, you shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do look to you this morning as our creator God, as our sovereign God, the God over all things, and we, we thank you that you're mindful of us this morning, and we pray that we would rightly understand who we are in light of your creative work, and we would respond by faith and trust in you, and live the life of faith you've, you've called us to live. We pray this in your son Jesus' name, amen. The stories we tell shape our reality. The stories we tell as individuals or as cultures shape who we are and how we view reality. Whether they're true or or not true, they shape our reality. I heard a story a week or so ago about a man named Otto, Otto G. Lindbergh. Otto was a map maker for the general drafting company in the 1930s, and, and Otto was tasked with making a map of New York. And so he and his assistant created this map of New York. And this map, like all maps, told a story, right? A a map tells a story about how things are. You can look at it and you you see the story of where things are and how they're located in relationship to one another. And Otto created this map along with his assistant that told a story. And it was a story that was mostly true. But Otto and his assistant created a partly fictional story as well. Because what they did is at the intersection of two dirt roads, Otto created a fictional city. He took his initials and his assistant's initials and mixed them together, and they created this city called Algo, New York. Algo, New York, a fictional city. And the reason they created this fictional city at this intersection of two dirt roads, was to protect the trademark, the copyright on this map. 
people could take maps and, and simply copy them and say, well, we're also telling the story, and this is where the things are, and so they could, they could violate the copyright on a map. And so what Otto was trying to do is protect his copyright to create this, this fictional city. So if someone copied his map, he'd be able to say, look, that's my map, because Algo, New York, doesn't even exist, and there it is on yours. Well, some time passes, Otto sells this map, and people buy it, and some time passes. I believe it's in the 1950s, and Rand McNally comes out with a map of New York. And sure enough, there is Algo, New York, on Rand McNally's map. And Otto thinks, jackpot. (laughs) Rand McNally has some deep pockets. And so Otto contacts Rand McNally and says, excuse me, but I'm going to sue you. I suggest you give me some money because I know for a fact you copied my map. Uh, There is no Algo, New York. Rand McNally comes back and says, why, yes, actually there is. Here's what had happened. Otto had sold this map, and people had purchased this map, and people had arrived at this intersection of two roads expecting there to be an Algo, New York, and there wasn't one. And one of the people who bought Otto's map was a person who built gas stations. And he thought, you know what this intersection needs is a gas station. And so he created this gas station and called it Algo General Store. And this Algo was created. In fact, I believe at its height, I've heard there were like two houses there as well. And Algo New York was created. And Otto didn't get his big payoff. His fictional story had, had shaped reality. The stories we tell about how things are shape how we perceive things and, and what we create and what we do. And perhaps the most profound stories we tell are the stories about where we've come from, our origin stories. As we've talked about before, Moses writes the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible to prepare the people of Israel to go into the land of Canaan and live. And as the people go into the land of Canaan to live, what Moses is telling them is you need to live by faith. To live by faith in God. And as the people are going to go into the land of Canaan to to live by faith, they're going to encounter people there who have a story of how the world came into existence, the the Canaanites. And their story of how the world came into existence is a false story. But it affects people in profound ways. And if the Israelites listen to the Canaanites' story about where they're from, it's going to affect what they believe about their present and how they're to live, and they're going to live in ways that are that are gross violations of what God has, has said his people are to do and how they're to live. Worship of these false Canaanite uh, gods involved practices that we can't even talk about on a Sunday morning in a large public setting. I mean, just the things that we do to worship these gods were, were terrible. And so God knows that his people need to know who he is, and they need to know some things about their origin so it will affect them in the present and affect how they view the future. And you and I, as we talked about last week, live in a culture that has an origin story. And the, the, 
the dominant origin story of our culture is the materialist story. The story that says that, that all that we are is material, there's nothing else that's, that's spiritual, all we are is material, all there ever has been and all there ever will be is material. And that story of materialism affects how we view where we came from, how we view where we're headed, and how we live our lives right now. The materialist story of origin affects our view of morality, it affects our view of the value of life, it affects how we treat one another. Origin stories matter. Origin stories shape reality in the most profound ways possible. And so as we look at Genesis chapter 1, as we look at Genesis chapter 1, what we want to do is to see what God tells us about our origin. What he believes is most important for us to understand about who we are, who he is, and what he desires us to do. God's design for me at the beginning helps me understand his plan for me in the present and in the future. God's design for me at the beginning helps me understand his plan for me in the present and in the future. That's what we began looking at last week as we looked at Genesis 1. And I told you there's four things about God from the beginning that we're going to look at. And these four things help us understand who he is, his authority, and his purpose for our lives. And here's the first thing we looked at last week, right? We saw that God is the sovereign creator. We see this in verses 1 and 2. God is the, the sovereign creator. So we think about Genesis 1. It's, it's interesting. It begins here by, by saying, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God is the subject of the first sentence. He's the subject of this entire chapter. He's eternal. Hebrews 11.3 says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was made What is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So here at the beginning, God speaks the universe into creation. We hold that by faith. God is eternal. He's he's powerful. He's personal. And as the original audience would have heard this, this story of their origin, they would have understood some things about God as the creator God, being an eternal God, a powerful God, a personal God. As we've mentioned before, the Pentateuch is just the first part of God's overarching story of redemption. And from where we are in the story of redemption, we can now understand that Jesus Christ was there as as part of the triune God at the moment of creation. As Paul writes in Colossians chapter 1, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, by Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And so as we read the creation story, the implication for the gospel is that as we place our faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we're placing our faith in the one who brought the entire universe into being, the one who holds the universe together, the one for whom the entire universe was created. We place our faith in Jesus Christ not just as this nice guy, not just as this carpenter from Israel, not just this... uh, prophet who told some cool stories and did some nice things, but we place our faith in Jesus Christ as absolute, complete Lord over every nook and cranny of the cosmos. That's what it means to place our faith in Christ as Lord. So God is the sovereign creator. The second thing we see about God, and we began to talk about this a little bit last week, is that God is the only God. 
I want to walk through the days with you here, the days of creation. As we look at these days of creation, we see that they're told from the perspective kind of of one standing on the earth and, and looking out and, and seeing God's create, creation uh, taking place. And we see that the days are kind of separated in these two groups, the first three days and the, the second three days. And we see that God highlights things in the, the, create, the story of creation that help show that he is the only God. So, for example, look at the first day. It says, and God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good. He separated the light from the darkness. He calls the light day. The darkness he called night. Evening, morning, first day. What does he do here? He speaks. He has absolute power. He speaks, and these things come into existence. And not only does he speak, but he names. He calls the light day. He calls the darkness night. He, he separates. He that doesn't mean to like pull apart, but he, he allocates, he puts in their proper sphere. He names, he has absolute authority. Now, what's the implication here, right? Well, what it meant for the Canaanites is that their story of creation was wrong. See, the Israelites were going to go and they were going to hear stories of, of gods lurking in the darkness. They were going to hear stories of of gods at, at war with one another and, and light triumphing over darkness, and that's not the case here. I wouldn't say that uh, I wouldn't say that I'm afraid of the dark. I would say that personally, I'm afraid of what's in the dark uh, that I don't know about. You know, this uh, last week I, I got up a little bit earlier than than normal, and I, I went for a run. And there's kind of like this. I can take two paths, and I kind of like to take this one path normally, and and as I, as I take this road, I kind of turn on this, this country road, and I, I hit the road right as this, the sun is coming up, and it's just this, this, beautiful, um, just this beautiful run. I know that doesn't sound normal to some people, but it's, it's very beautiful. But this morning, I, I hit that road just a little bit too early. And so I, I come to that fork, and I'm like, man, it is just, it is just pitch dark. I don't know if I, I can't, I can barely see my feet. I, I don't know how this is going to go. And, and I had this thought in my mind. I said, you know, um, I've, I've lived in Illinois long enough to kind of know the animals out there, but I'm not, I'm not totally sure that bears don't live in the corn sometimes. <laughs> so I don't know about this, you know. So I went ahead. I was, it's worth, so I went ahead. I, I ran the dark road, but there's, you just, you just don't know what's in the dark, right? In my family, too, you know, we play hide-and-go-seek in the dark sometimes in our house, and it, it's very, very scary because you don't know when someone's going to just come jump out screaming at you. Right? Here, th- there's nothing in the dark. There's, there's no—God doesn't have to say, man, I hope there's no, I hope there's no scary creature that has to fight in that dark. God's in complete control over it. He's absolutely sovereign. Then you, you come to day two, same thing. There's this, he says, let there be an expanse, a separation of the waters, and let it separate the water from the waters. And, and, and by the way, just I have a hard time picturing what's taking place. I, I don't know what this looks like. And sometimes I think we come to these, these days, and we, we really try to, to figure out more than God has revealed. In fact, those who, those who disagree with God and his word here will sometimes make a mockery 
of what's taking place here. I, I think Peter's words, and I want just a little bit of an aside here. You know, Peter says something very interesting in Second Peter chapter three. He's talking about people who who scoff, scoff at God, and they say this. This is Second Peter three, beginning in verse four. He says. The scoffers are saying this. They say, well, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. Then Peter says, for they, that is the scoffers, deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through, and through water by the word of God. And I think what he's saying there is, is some people say, well, that what I see right now is what has always been and what will always continue to be. God isn't coming. God isn't involved in this process. And I think what, what Peter is, is absolutely right about here is that um, we don't know what the beginning was like. God does. God was there, and God reveals some things to us, but it's very arrogant for us to, to impose some things on the text here. So, so anyway, God's separating the, the light and the dark. He, has, he speaks, once again, his absolute power. And he, I'm, I'm sorry, he does this with the earth and the sky as well. He, he speaks, he, he says, let this, let this expanse exist between the waters and what he says is what happens. Once again, what's the implication? Well, there's, there's no deities living in there. There's no, there's no God in the sky that vies with him for supremacy. You know, the Canaanites would have had different, different gods, and the Sumerians in southern Mesopotamia would have had different religious gods here. There would have been Anu, the sky god, this kind of this general force that exists and can exist in these these different locales there's no anu the sky god there there's no enlel enlel's like the the god of the atmosphere and he could put according to the the canaanites he could put gods on the throne or he could put uh, kings on thrones and he could could depose them he's not there baal isn't there baal was supposed to be the, the god of the storms you don't you don't see and god created the the, separates the earth and the sky, and, and there's Baal. He, he's not there. The, the rider of the clouds is nowhere to be seen. There's just God. There's not a bunch of gods. There's not no God. There's one God, right? Then you come to the land and the sea, day three. And now here's something really interesting happens. Look at the text with me. Again, God speaks in verse 9. He gathers the waters together. He causes dry land to appear. He calls the dry land earth and the waters he calls sea. And, and then he comes to verse 11. And here he does something. Of course, all this is interesting, but this is, this is something a little bit different. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit and so forth. And then verse 12, the earth brought forth vegetation. Now, now how is that different? Well, now God is using secondary causes. Before it's been God, you know, God does this and God speaks and this happens and God speaks and this happens. Well, now God sets laws in place that are going to allow secondary things to to take place. He says, earth, I want this to happen and then the earth does something. But the earth is what does it. But God is still in control. Now, what's the implication the Canaanites believe that there are multiple deities, that there are a bunch of different gods, and there's one God who kind of controls this crop, and there's one God who controls the sky, and one God who controls the rain, and so you, you, you engage in different type of practices to 
to get the attention of certain gods. And again, the things they did, we, we can't even talk about it on a Sunday morning, but they believe these things about their origin, so it affects how they live in the present, and they live in a way that is completely, totally contradictory to how God would have a person live. And they do that because they think there's a bunch of different gods that are causing different crops to grow in certain ways, and so they want to they grab their attention and get the gods to act in a way that's favorable to them. And, and God says, uh, that, that's just absurd. There isn't some God that's in charge of the crop. There's not some God that's in charge of the rain. There's one God. And I've established laws by which the, the plants operate in obedience to. We'll come back to that. Because we live in a culture that struggles with that understanding as well, right? We recognize the laws, but we deny the reality that someone put the laws in place. We'll come back to that. Day four. Now you kind of come back to this idea of light and darkness from day one. There's parallels. God creates these, these, these stars in the sky, the, the expanse of the heavens. And again, there's no other God there. There's not the Egyptian God. There's not the, the gods. There's not the Babylonian gods. There's just one God. In Isaiah 40, verse 25, God would say, To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Who created the stars? He who brings out their host by number, calling them by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And that's what we see here. God is creating these stars. He's creating the universe. And he's in absolute control. Day five, he speaks, he creates, he creates the, wa- the, the creatures that are there in the water, he creates the creatures that dwell in the sky, and he blesses them. Again, there's these secondary causes taking place. He says, okay, I want you guys to, to be fruitful and multiply, fill the waters in the sea, and the birds multiply and, and fill the earth. Now, if you look at some ancient literature, you'll find that the Canaanites believe that the god Baal wrestled a mighty sea creature. In fact, there's a, a something called the Baal cycle where there's Baal and this other god talking. This other god is acknowledging, you know, Baal, you are pretty powerful. I mean, you're the guy who defeated the giant uh, sea serpent, the sea snake, or whatever, and 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 this mighty battle took you know chopped him up and all this stuff. And Bell's like, yeah, yeah, I know, I know. What 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 is what does this tell us? God's aware of, of the sea serpent. It's just some fish in the sea he created. He didn't have to fight it. He just created it. it. Just swims in the sea at his bidding. Day six. Day six is the longest day and. Again, he says, let the earth bring forth living creatures and creates the animals on the earth. And Again, there's these laws put into place. Let them bring forth according to their kind. And, and, it, and it's so, God, may the, uh, the, the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, livestock, and God saw that it was good. Again, the implication is there's one God. There's one God. I, I want to read a little bit of an article to you. By, name, uh, by a guy named Paul Davies. Paul Davies is a, uh, um, he's an atheist. He's not a person who acknowledges God. But he's, 
he's a very intellectually honest atheist in, in many ways, and I appreciate his tone. And I want to read to you what he writes about some of the things we've, we've just read. We've just read about God creating these laws and putting these things in place. And I want you to listen to what Paul Davies writes, and this is from a New York Times article in 2007, November of 2007. And and listen to what he writes about the problem that someone who doesn't believe in God, but a person who says, well, I, I just believe in science, l- listen to what he acknowledges the difficulty that they have. He writes, science, we are told, is the most reliable form of knowledge about the world because it's based on testable hypotheses. Religion, we're told, by contrast, is based on faith. So science, we're told, is based on, hypo- we test this as hypotheses. Religion is based on faith. The problem, he writes, with this neat assumption is that science has its own faith-based belief system. All science proceeds on the assumption that nature is ordered in a rational and intelligible way. You couldn't be a scientist if you thought that the universe was a meaningless jumble of odds and ends haphazardly juxtaposed. When physicists probed probe to a deeper level of subatomic structure, or astronomers extend the reach of their instruments, they expect to encounter additional elegant mathematical order. And so far, this faith has been justified. All the laws that regulate the, the world, the world within the atom, the laws of motion, all are expressed as tidy mathematical relationships. But where do these laws come from? And why do they have the form that they do? He says that's the struggle of a a secularist, of a materialist, of a person who believes that all answers are found in science. We, We search because we believe that the universe has this order, and so far... We've been justified in that assumption, but really that assumption is based upon faith. He says, I used to ask people, as a student, where these laws came from. He says, you've got to believe that these laws won't fail, that we won't wake up tomorrow to find heat flowing from cold to, heat, cold to hot suddenly, or the speed of light changing by the hour. When he said that, I thought of that uh, Dr. Seuss book, Wacky Wednesday, where the kid wakes up and like the shoes on the ceiling. And, and it, I'm not a theoretical physicist, obviously, but <clears throat> Dr. Seuss fan. He says, you won't wake up and find all the laws have suddenly changed. He says, I've asked other, my, my physicist colleagues, why the laws of physics are what they are. Their answers vary from, well, that's not a scientific question, to nobody knows. And the favorite reply is, there is no reason they are what they are, they just are. And he says, that, that, that's a deeply anti-rational idea, the idea that laws exist reasonlessly. There has to be a reason. If one traces these reasons all the way back down to the bedrock of reality, the law of physics, only to find that the reason, that reason then deserts us. It makes a mockery of science. And he says, clearly then both religion and science are founded on faith, namely on belief of the existence of something outside the universe, like an unexplained God or the unexplained set of physical laws, maybe even of a huge ensemble of unseen universes too. For that reason, both monotheistic religion and orthodox science fail in his mind, to provide a complete account of physical existence. He says, the very notion of physical law, listen very carefully to this, the very notion of physical law is a theological one. 
in the first place, a fact that makes many scientists squirm. Isaac Newton first got the idea of an absolute, universal, perfect, immutable law from the Christian doctrine that God created the world and ordered it in a rational way. You see what he's saying there? He's saying scientists have placed their faith in these laws, but we just believe in these laws without understanding why these laws exist. And he rightly recognizes that's a problem. The Israelites are getting ready to go into a land, as Moses writes this, where they're going to be told that there are many, 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 many gods and you need to worship them. If they, if they buy into that creation myth and believe that there are many, many, many gods and they need to worship them, it is going to profoundly affect how they act in the present and it's going to, to shape what they believe about their future, and it's going to cause them to live in a way that's not faith in God, but a violation of everything that he, he calls them to be and to do. But just as it is true that there are not many, many, many gods, it's also true that there are, are not zero gods. And if we buy into the creation myth that there are zero gods then that's going to affect what we believe about where we came from and where we are right now and what we should do in the future. God says there's one God. There's not zero gods. There's not many gods. There's one God. And it's me. You should live by faith in me. Here's a second thing, a third thing that I want us to think about as we we think about this passage. There's so, so much more here, but here's the third thing. We're having to do an overview, of course. God is the divine designer. God is the divine designer. As you look at verses 26 through 31, I think the main thing you need to grasp is what happens there at the very beginning. God, in this act of special creation, creates man. And the most important thing to understand about his creation of men and women is that he creates them in his own likeness. He says, let's make man in our image after our likeness. Now, what does it mean to create in our own likeness. What does it mean that you and I are created in the image of God? Let me read you what Wayne Grudem writes. I think he words this well. There's two things about what he says I want you to, to notice. He says, The fact that man is in the image of God means, one, that man is like God, and two, that he represents God. Man is like God, and man represents God. Now, what does it mean that we're like God? Well, that word image and that word likeness both refer to something that's not identical to, but it's, it's similar to something else. So, for example, in Genesis 5, 3, the same two words are used when it says, Adam had a son, Seth, and he, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and, and named him Seth. So, there's Seth. He's in the image and likeness of Adam. He's not the same as Adam. He's not identical to Adam, but he's but he's similar. He's, he's representative of him. He's like him. So what does it mean that you and I are like God? Well, I think the rest of Scripture kind of flushes that out, but basically it means that we're, we're like God and that we're, we have the, the same type of characteristics. We have the same personality. We have a mind. We have a will. We have emotion. We, we can reflect God's moral likeness. So we're like God in some very profound ways. We're in his image. We're like him. So our goal should be to know him more and more, right? But not only are we like God, 
as you look at the text, what you see is, is to be an image bearer means not only are we like God, but we are his representatives. And, and look what happens. He says, you're going to be made in my image. And then he says, the implication of that is, let them have dominion. Then we see the, the creation in verse 27. And then he says in verse 28, God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on, on the earth. And then the rest of creation is, is placed under man, and so man becomes this representative of God. He has God's likeness. He's his image bearer. And now he exercises dominion over the things that God has just created. Now, if that's true, how does that affect our, our present and our future? Well, it affects, first of all, how we view creation, right? The things that God entrusts to us, if we're representatives of God, we're to use the things that God has entrusted to us in the same way that God would. We're not autonomous creatures that can just do whatever we want with the material possessions that God has given us. We can't just ruin the earth that he's given us. We have this responsibility before God to use the earth and use his resources in accordance with how God would use them. We don't worship the creation, uh, neither do we trash it and use it for selfish ends. We use it as representatives of God. We're his image bearers. So we exercise dominion. But this passage is also, I think, important for us as as we think about how we view the resources he's given us and our relationships with one another. It's also important in shaping how we view children, right? The materialist cannot, in the materialistic worldview, rightly value children. He or she may claim to, but but in reality, they can't, right? The materialist has an origin story. And based upon that origin story, what are children? Well, children are just another material thing. There's no soul there. That's why they can use words like fetal tissue to describe a child. A product of conception. The materialist worldview on on children profoundly affects what we believe about the present and the future for children. We need to make, make sure that we are not shaped, even unintentionally, by the materialistic worldview concerning the, the value and the place of children. Look at the text very, very carefully. Children are not a curse. Children are not something that happens after the fall, like, okay, here's the fall, I guess we have to have kids now. No, uh, children are are part of of God's blessing upon you and I. Being fruitful means means having children and and being uh, being good shepherds of children. And and now, as we stand in the likeness of God, the children are in our likeness, and our our goal is to impart upon them the, the... the, the beauty of living a life of worship to God. Now, that has profound implications for us, right? And, and I don't believe that there's a, a chapter and verse where you can turn to and it says, okay, uh, every person should have this many children. And, and I wouldn't say that it's, it's wrong at times to say, okay, um, our family has, has reached a cap- capacity. But I would say this, as a person makes decisions about their life, marriage and and having children and all those things, any thinking 
that enters into the equation that says children aren't a good thing is bad thinking. In other words, thinking that says, well, children are kind of a hindrance to what I, I really want to do, or, or children are kind of a nuisance in terms of, of the things I really want to possess, or say, you know, children are kind of a drain on my materialistic resources. All of that is, is thinking not shaped by God's word, but shaped by materialistic worldview. It's our, it's our present. This idea that I've, I've, I'm created in the image of God, that God is a divine designer, affects me in, in the present. And also, you know, there's so much to cover here, but it also affects the future, right? There's this great book by Randy Alcorn called Heaven. And in it, he tells the story of an English vicar. And, and someone comes to the English vicar and says, uh, what, what, what's going to happen to you, vicar, after you die? And the vicar pauses for a moment. He says, well, uh, I suppose if it comes to that, I will enter into a state of absolute, complete, and eternal bliss. But please, let's not bring up such depressing subjects, all right? In other words, we say that we believe that heaven is going to be this, this great thing, but as, as we think about it, it, sometimes it doesn't sound all that exciting. And I think part of the reason it doesn't sound that exciting is we have a wrong conception of what it's going to look like. We think, well, okay, we're going to be in heaven, and we're going to sit on these clouds, and I, I guess we're going to sing a whole, whole bunch for a really, really long time. And that doesn't sound all that enjoyable to most people. And, and of course, we're going to engage in worshiping God for eternity, and, and we are going to find absolute joy in his presence and, and being with him. But as you look at our beginning, we, you see that we're designed to, to do things. And I believe that the eternal state is going to look a, a lot like the Garden of Eden in some, in some very interesting ways. God has designed us to, to be something. He's designed us to do something. He's designed us to, to be in his image, to, to be in his image and to think and to be creative. And I believe we're going to continue to do that into eternity. There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. It's also going to be redeemed. The implications for the gospel and that God is the divine designer mean that God, means that God has a plan for us, that God has a design for us. And as I place my faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, I'm placing my faith and my trust in him, and I'm going to live in the present as he's designed me to be, and I'm going to anticipate the future redemption of all things, of all the renewed creation, with the joy he's called me to anticipate it with. Here's the last thing about God that I want us to look at this morning, and just very, very quickly, that God is the God who rested. God is the God who rested in verses 1 through 3. It says the seventh, he finishes this on the seventh day. He finishes his work that he's done. He rested on the seventh day from all his work. And he blessed the seventh day and he made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he'd done in creation. As we come and we trace this theme of God's rest through Scripture, we, we see that God gives us this, this day, this Sabbath day, uh, to point to the future. As we come to Genesis 3, we're going to see that rest is removed. We, we leave this state of rest and we enter a state in which our toil is not productive, our, our work is not productive, and, and now we exist in a time after Christ where we can place our faith in Christ, work can be redeemed once again, and we can look forward to the day of Christ's return. And the writer of Hebrews says it this way, we long to enter into God's rest. We long to have this restoration of relationship with God where we can be everything that he's created and designed us to be. 
Why does Moses tell us these things? There's so many questions he leaves unanswered. Why does he choose to reveal these things to us? He does so so that at the very beginning of God's story of redemption, we can understand who God is and who we are in relationship to God. We understand that God is a sovereign creator. We understand that there is one God. We understand that God is a sovereign creator who's, who's the only God. He's the God who invites us to experience his rest. So we think about who God is. It causes us to understand who we are and to worship him rightly. You and I can enter into a relationship with God. We can look forward to the day of his rest. and We can do so by placing our faith in him, in his son, Jesus Christ. It's a story of redemption, a story that begins here in Genesis 1 as we see the entire universe come into being. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of your son, Jesus. We thank you for the life that we have as we trust in him. And, and Father, we pray that you'd help us now to, to live rightly in light of that, to, to, to rightly understand who you are and to, to trust in you moment by moment, day by day, and Father, if there's someone here this morning who hasn't, hasn't trusted in you for their salvation, I pray that you draw them to yourself, that they would recognize their need for a Savior and to trust in Jesus alone for that salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen.